Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we're offering our very first line of Tudor Time Machine merch. So these six items are only available until November 30th. Then their history. See what I did there? Go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button to see our Tudorific designs, the best pod swag out there. This inaugural offering is 10% off, so don't miss these items that declare your interest and your style. And enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 38 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to all you new listeners. To enjoy all the twists and turns of our story, it's best to start at episode one. We're super excited to be reaching thousands of Tudor-minded people from all over the world. It's amazing. In our last episode, we read some poetry with Anne and Margaret, but now we're returning to spend some time with Constance and Philomena. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jessie. Chapter 38, Cheapside, in which Constance and Philomena impersonate a boy by post. Constance wove her way towards the Arundel Inn, Wynne traipsing behind her. Cheapside was in exactly the wrong direction, diametrically opposed to the position of her final destination. Lady Elizabeth Clinton's home on the Strand. Yet Constance was far more interested in sharing news with Philomena than arriving early at a gathering of questionable outcome. Her sponsor had arranged it and invited Constance on the chance that Herbert's mother might attend and the two could meet. How burdensome. Constance would only have a little time at the Arundel Inn. She ploughed along until she found herself stuck behind a slow-moving mob of sheep. She castigated herself for choosing Thames Street, which was particularly cold since it was right by the water, overcrowded as it led to market, and full of shit due to all the animals. She wondered if it were dung or dust on the bottom of her cloak, but she was too frozen and impatient to stop and discover. Would these woolly nincompoops never move? Constance wondered. She turned up Bread Street and dodged down Pissing Alley, which was empty but patchy with foul yellowish ice. It was taking much longer than she had supposed. She would take a boat back. Going by water was faster. No one at the inn questioned Constance's arrival. She was guided with nods and gestures until she reached the site of the tennis court. The workers spoke energetically together. Opinions turned to clouds in the frigid air. Philomena held up her gloved hand and enumerated something on her fingers. Cuthbert shooed the men back to work. Constance was impressed. She had no one who would answer to her. Well, Wynne. But she pitied Wynne. Philomena caught sight of her. Come inside, your poor raw cheeks. Constance, why are you out walking in this wind without a wizard? I will provide you one to go back with. Wynne, go to the kitchen to warm yourself. What news have you, Constance? The best, Constance said. I burst to tell you, our poet had a bastard son called Francis. The mother was a Lady Elizabeth Darrell, and consider this, she was a Catholic. Can you not fancy that our Sir Thomas entrusted the relic to her? Where is this lady? Shall we visit her? Philomena said, pulling a bench up to the hearth. Constance edged her feet as close as possible to the flames. Oh, she's dead, poor woman. Perhaps she did not know what she had. The relic might have passed to the son, Francis Darrell. 
Today I find myself mightily wishing we could find it. Why today? Philomena, are you melancholy? Have you news of your mother? Indeed, nothing worthy of speech. Yesterday a note from the physician contained no news. My mother's state continues as a kind of equilibrium between sleep and wakefulness. She brushed off her thoughts, renewing interest with the matters at hand. Let me find some pretext to ask this Francis Darrell here. Oh, we will use our poor pawn, George Wyatt. The plot took hold in Constance's mind. We will write to Master Darrell, as if from George. We will say there is news of a Wyatt inheritance, and ask him to bring the pomanda as a way of proving his parentage. In truth, Master Darrell should come, and George Wyatt should share something of what he recovers. Yes, I convince myself that we do Master Darrell a good turn by bringing him here. George Wyatt is not the generous sort who would summon him of his own accord. Huzzah! A bold plot, a fine one. And I shall send money to Master Darrell for his journey, saying it is from Wyatt. We need a man's hand. Should we ask Rutland to write as Wyatt? Constance felt tears spring to her eyes. He is furious with me. The lady he worshipped, Thomason St. John, has swelled with an indiscretion. Jilted men are ever out of sorts, Philomena said. Every day they appear here at my inn in black moods, yet I cannot follow. Why would the Earl let loose his fury on you? And Constance, why should it bring tears to your eyes? Do not cry over it. We shall ask another man to write our letter. Sir Ralph, he shall write it and then forget every word he has set down but a moment later. Constance laughed. Her own feelings confounded her. She could not tell where her misery came from, and she could not admit to Philomena her own juvenile machinations. A diversion was in order. Philomena, I shall confide in you. I suspect the sire of Thomason's babe is Captain Hawkins. No, gasped Philomena. He is so rough, and he spends time with that little beast creature on his shoulder. Yet to another, Captain Hawkins is an adventure. That may be, but it is daft to choose that seaman over Rutland, Robin Goodfellow or no. Dearest, you want a clean handkerchief. Your eyes are overflowing again. Do not doubt the Earl. He cannot help his pampered boy temper. He only wanted to sting, not wound you. Constance shook her head with vehemence. It matters not. My time for such friends may be at an end. I am not as you are. I am no master of my fate. My aunt will soon arrive. She is to sojourn at Sir Henry Lee's as a guest of his poor wronged wife. And even today I go to Lady Elizabeth Clinton to meet Herbert's mother. I must play along as if I might marry Herbert, even as I dread the monkish Charles. My legs are in a bear trap. I cannot run. Constance, I am to marry a man named Nash, who fights far away. A nice fellow, chosen by my father long ago. That is that. Your aunt will protest a marriage to Herbert, of course. But what Charles proposes is unnatural. No aunt would wish this strange fashion of marriage on her kin. I do not know, but Pittigans, before I am taken away to Spain, I wish to find this relic. Let me have done with this one thing that suits me. Constance, I tread lightly, and you must do as you will. But cannot you ask to be released? Or is this in truth a betrothal? If you tell your aunt Charles's plans, will she not forget the promise between you? Perhaps it is not so inevitable. I believe it is. 
Then you must look for happiness with another man. You will not owe loyalty to Charles if the marriage is not consummated. The situation need not be so bleak. Not for you, Philomena. I see you have your blackjack, and yet you will marry another. It is true. Blackjack would never wed me, nor have I looked to it. Not even the Queen can wed her Robert Dudley. Blackjack's father will plan an advantageous match for him. He may be a second son, but ladies with land still swoon for such a face. I cannot be as you are, Philomena. I cannot love another as I marry Charles. Constance felt embarrassed by voicing a notion that could only seem ridiculously romantique. Philomena said, Love is not always marshalled to rank and convenience. Philomena, I cry you mercy. I must to Lady Clinton's, and the mother of a man I will never be free to marry. My head is a hexahedron. I cannot even count the number of faces I must present. It is you who struggle with melancholy today. Let us think of something diverting. Remember how Princess Cecilia defended us to Sir Henry Lee? That will flip your humour. Oh, indeed it will. How she made her voice big like a goddess. I thought his codpiece sodden by the whole affair. Oh, dear. And I'm sure the codpiece was given the great Sir Henry by the ambassador to the cosmos. I tell you true, Philomena. I adore the Swede. Her mood's never stale. You are right. My humour is turned, and I shall be on my way. Leaving the inn, Constance confronted the approaching figure of the wonderful Cecilia Vasa herself, dramatically in her black cloak, blue eyes only visible. Flattery must have summoned her. Constance almost applauded this apparition. Carefully, she dropped Cecilia a curtsy. Ah, it is you, my sweet mouse, Cecilia whispered from the depths of her hood. Quietly, quickly. We run to our holes. None of the English cats shall see the treats we have procured from under their whiskers. No, madam. You shall present your delicious lover to me at some better opportunity. I shall bestow on him Sweden's blessing. But now I am as a fairy, a sprite. You do not see me, and I do not see you. Scurry away, dear mouse. Scurry away. Constance, with the customary sensations of hilarity and wonder at her Swedish mistress, did. Constance and Philomena are on the trail again. Well, with this discovery that there's this bastard son, Francis Darrell, they're hoping they can find a way to the relic. So Francis Darrell is the son of Thomas Wyatt, the poet, and not his wife, Elizabeth Brooke, but his mistress... Elizabeth Darrell. <laughs> you can only date people named Elizabeth. <laughs> and she was considered a very loyal person and a very devout Catholic woman. You know, I don't associate being a devout Catholic woman of the 16th century and a, a woman who openly lived with a man who was married to another woman and had his children. But I think there were just different ideas about those things in the 16th century. It's not what we assume. We assume it, they were more uptight than us. But. but I think because they didn't marry for love, they were more accepting of, should we say, transgression in marriage. Mm -hmm. And also, one of the things about the Elizabethans is that they saw having a bastard child as part of human frailty, but not a sin, and certainly not the biggest sin. No, later, being an unmarried woman with a child had ruinous consequences. But in this period, 
those English record keepers, we, we love to talk about how many records they keep, they'd often record the name of the father of an illegitimate child, and the father was compelled to support the children, girls as well as boys, but that father wasn't compelled to live with those children. Those children wouldn't take the father's last name, probably, so they wouldn't be confused with the father's legitimate children. Right. They took the mother's name, which is why Francis Darrell is Francis Darrell and not Francis Wyatt. The real sting is that as a bastard, we keep saying bastard today. We like that. Bastard. bastard <laughs> bastardly base. Bastard. The real sting was that as an illegitimate child, <laughs> a child born out of wedlock, you could not inherit the property. Your father could leave you some money if he wanted to or some possessions, but you couldn't inherit the title or the estate that belonged to the family. But actually, only one person could really inherit. Right, the eldest legitimate son or male relative. England has a long history of primogeniture law, and TV and books in England have a long history of primogeniture law being a big plot point. Let's think of Downton Abbey. Because this is a law that states that the firstborn legitimate son or male heir inherits the entire estate. And if there's no legitimate male heir, it could go to a male cousin, to the brother of the father. It could go to... A nephew. A nephew. Just a the, second cousin. <laughs> the closest living male You could go could to find. Germany and yes. get somebody to get the crown like they did in England yes. when they ran out of people in England. So we've read about widows and we've spoken about them. And most of the time, if they inherited the property, it was only for their own lives. They wouldn't inherit the properties outright. They couldn't pass it on as an inheritance to somebody else. Right. Of their choosing. Right. It would go immediately to the, to the next male relative. And the widow might not get it for life. It could go to a son or a cousin instead of the widow. Immediately. Again, this is a very popular plot point in British novels and TV. Yeah, some of my favorites. And of course, you could make a will, as Thomas Wyatt did, to help out friends and relations. And fortunately for Thomas Wyatt, he died in 1542. And that's important because until 1540, a will could control only personal property. So land passed to the oldest male no matter what. After 1540, you could leave an estate to a person of your choice. But not your main estate. But not your main estate. Right. So if you had other lands, you could leave them. There was a reason for this. Because they considered the land everything. Because the land determined the wealth of your family. And they wanted your family and your family name to be as rich as it could be. So they wanted to keep the entire thing intact, not only so they could afford to run everything and, of course, maintain their wealth, but also so that your family name would remain powerful. So they wanted to keep the family seat intact. So as you're saying, there might be other lands that you would hold in other areas of the country, or maybe you were given some job that gave you lands that, you know, the king monarchs are always giving their favorites lands. But the family seat, the the center of the family, has to stay intact. The only way to make money off that was you could mortgage it. And that's another big plot point in English novels and TV shows is the family seats are so heavily mortgaged that nobody can afford to leave them because <laughs> right. even selling it 
wouldn't help because it's mortgaged so much. And this law of primogeniture is old in England. It goes back as early as the 600s during the feudal system because, again, they wanted to hold on to these estates to be as large as possible to maintain the wealth of the family name. It's so different than how we think about things now. Everything has to be fair yes. between the kids. Everything yeah. has to be fair, and you know we would never want to show favoritism. And it seems bizarre that the parents would accept this crazy system. It's just a completely different value system. Yeah, not to get back to Downton Abbey, but, but it is an interesting point because one of the other things in Downton Abbey is that the wife's money was brought into the estate, so it can't now be taken out. So that's why the daughter can't inherit the wife's money either. And everybody sort of accepts that. It's something that has to be done. It's always about the wealth of the family name. And second, sons had to find a way to support themselves. Daughters were expected to be married off and they would get a nice big dowry and that would entice a, a good marriage. So for them, that was what, what they got out of being the daughter of a rich, influential landowner. It's hard to get rid of laws like primogenitor. Mm -hmm. Even in Britain now, they're struggling to eradicate it and make changes. Even though the law really only affects the peerage, the super upper class, which still exists. And it's a tiny amount of people. But in 2013, a bill was introduced for women to be able to inherit titles. If they inherited the title, then they could sit in the House of Lords. So the House of Lords formed a committee to think about this, and they decided to reject it. They formed the committee of <laughs> their own selves. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because that's one other important thing to reiterate is that the title went with the estate. So you couldn't leave one child the estate and the other child, you get to be, you know, Lord so-and-so. No, they had to go together. The title and the estate had to go together. So by definition, that means there's no women in the House of Lords because they can't inherit those titles. It's crazy. And of course, we, we know that up until 2015 in England, Whatever order the children were born in, the crown would go to the boy, even if he was the youngest child. But in 2015, when um, Kate was pregnant, they passed a law that whatever sex that child was, the oldest child would get the title. And that seems like what's the big deal to us because it affects, I mean, literally Three people. Three, three people. <laughs> three people. Three children right now. But, you know, it's it's the point of it, I guess. It's one of those things. I feel like it doesn't matter, but I also feel like it does. I know. And in the end, it, it turned out kind of, quote unquote, not to matter because their firstborn child was a son. But anyway, it's the point of it. And, you know, these laws and changes, they bring pressure. You can see that in, in the life of Henry VIII because trying to have a legitimate son, I would say literally makes him insane. And, and loses a bunch of women their lives. And it's the opposite with his daughters. He's always having legitimate daughters declared bastards <laughs> so that they would have no claim to the throne. It's no, insane. If you were, were a girl, he would make you a bastard in a second. Are you a, are you a bastardess? No, I think, <laughs> I think you're still a bastard. A bastarda? No, a bastarda. <laughs> But if you were a boy, he would claim you as his own, even if you were actually born out of wedlock to his mistress, i.e. Henry Fitzroy. Yes, and 
I just want to say, we have nothing against bastards. We do not care. Oh, my God. No, we? No, no, no. We don't care. We don't care if people are married and do whatever they want. But but at the time, it, it was, was a big concern. Yes. You know, that's not all that Henry did. I mean, he was really married to Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn at the same time. And he just didn't care how it upended his children's lives or any lack of correspondence to what was really going on and how other people considered things. I mean, there were two women living at the same time who considered that they were his lawful wife. To say he wasn't really married to Catherine of Aragon, I mean, it's insane. Mm -hmm. So Henry needed a son to inherit, and he landed on his bastard, Henry Fitzroy, who he named the Duke of Richmond and Somerset, and Henry introduced him to court. And even giving him those titles. Yes. Trying to elevate him so he might be acceptable. Do you think the court might have actually accepted Henry Fitzroy if he had lived and Henry hadn't had a a legitimate son? I feel absolutely sure he would have. So Henry was very powerful. And I actually think if he said a male was to inherit the throne, I think everyone would have gone with Mm -hmm. it. I think he was extremely powerful. And... If Fitzroy would have lived, he would have been chosen over Mary, Jane Grey, or Elizabeth. Right. So it would have gone Edward and then Fitzroy. I think so. I mean, maybe there would have been a civil war between the two sons. And also, if Fitzroy was, frankly, older, a certain personality, Mm -hmm. I think he could have gotten it for sure. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, Henry was able to get married six times if he's like, this kid is my heir. I'm going to change the laws. He could have changed it to the French law, right? Which was that you get to name your heir. Even in Elizabeth's times, they were like, who do you want to be your heir? So, I mean, I think if he named it, everyone would have accepted it. I mean, it was something they certainly saw, naming your heir. Actually, in truth, Henry named his heir as Edward, and then he named Mary and Elizabeth as heirs after Edward. But, I mean, there was so much struggle about that. Some people said, oh, well, we should respect the old king's desires. And other people said, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't have a woman on the throne. They didn't, you know. But Edward named Jane Grey and yeah, Henry no, named that's Mary. Right. That's right. So, so it was the old king versus the yeah. new king. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. A bastard son certainly would have taken precedence over a legitimate daughter or an illegitimate daughter, depending on how that turned out. And anyway, if the laws didn't support Henry, he would have simply changed the law. It's good to be king. But R. Wyatt did not have so many choices. Or depending on how you look at it, he had too many choices because he had a legitimate son, Thomas Wyatt, and an illegitimate son, Francis Darrell. And they were both healthy. Mm -hmm. Do you think Wyatt would have left everything to Francis Darrell if he hadn't been obligated to leave it to his legitimate son? No, I don't think so. Because Wyatt the Younger was born very early in Thomas Wyatt the Elder's marriage. And he was being brought up right from the beginning to be the heir to the title and to Thomas's estates. So no, I don't I don't think so. What was lucky for Thomas Wyatt the Elder was that having only had, as far as I know, one child, that child lived which was pretty chancy. But he was also fair because he made special arrangements for Elizabeth Darrell, his mistress. He left her some property. So there was a true loyalty and love there. His dislike for his wife, Elizabeth Brooke, was kind of famous. Mm -hmm. And she was was, kind of a court event, actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She was the mother of Thomas Wyatt, the younger. And Thomas Wyatt, the elder, does not seem to have held the mother against the son at all. 
We've talked about this unhappy marriage, but the king would not allow Thomas Wyatt to divorce her. No, because Henry thought everyone else but himself should behave. Exactly. And that everyone else's reasons for thinking they should be able to get a divorce were never good, and his were always good. It's interesting because I've even read that Elizabeth Darrell's family tried to make a reconciliation between Wyatt and his wife, Elizabeth Brooke. That's really interesting to me because I don't know what would be in it for them. I don't know. You know, was there some sort of legitimate heir they were looking for? Or were they hoping she could make a better marriage? Right. That's right. Instead of being someone's mistress. Well, you have to imagine and hope that it was for good reasons. Or maybe not good reasons, but understandable reasons. So Elizabeth Darrell was one of Catherine of Aragon's ladies-in-waiting. And no doubt Elizabeth Darrell knew Anne Boleyn, these two women who were so in part of Thomas Wyatt's life, although they probably had very different ideas about the religious questions of the day, as Elizabeth Darrell was a devout Catholic, and we know Anne Boleyn was a reformer. Elizabeth Darrell served Catherine of Aragon until Catherine died, and she was very close with her, and Catherine wanted to take care of Elizabeth Darrell and actually left her 200 pounds, which was a lot of money at the time so that she could have that as a dowry to make a very good marriage. But unsurprisingly, Henry just ignored Catherine's will, and Elizabeth got nothing, so she needed another job in a household. All right, I'm going to suggest something. Maybe Catherine also thought, you got to stop being Thomas Wyatt's mistress and get yourself married, and I'm going to give you a little incentive here. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah, maybe so. But... What's ironic is after all this craziness and after breaking with the Pope and after all these political wranglings for all these years, Catherine and Anne died only a few months apart. And, of course, Henry, having created this crazy situation for so many years, married Jane Seymour like the day after Anne's beheading or very shortly thereof. It's so shocking. But Elizabeth Darrell was asked to join Jane Seymour's ladies, but she did not want to do it. She was a motivated Catholic, a mourner at Catherine of Aragon's funeral, and when she left court, she went to the household of Gertrude Blount. She did not commit suicide, like they have her doing in the Tudors, apparently. (laughs) So weird. (laughs) But Gertrude Blount does not seem to be related to Henry's mistress Elizabeth, Bessie Blount. But Gertrude was also a Catholic. And Gertrude was married to Henry Courtenoy, who was a very rich and powerful landowner in the West. And he was criticized for doing things in his own name and not the name of the Mm. king. Henry and Cromwell, unsurprisingly, did not like that. And, of course, Courtenoy was eventually arrested with his wife, Gertrude, and their child, Edward. And Henry VIII threw them all in the tower on suspicion of treason. So it seems that at this time, Elizabeth Darrell is already living at Wyatt's home, Allington Castle. So Elizabeth hightailed it out of this situation and actually ultimately gives evidence against Gertrude's family. I think she was just doing what she had to do. They called her in and she had to tell the truth. And in the end, it's hard to know if there was treason, real treason, to overthrow the king, because obviously Henry could make anything into treason if he wanted to get rid of someone. But what we do know is that Courtenoy, Henry Courtenoy, was found guilty, and he was beheaded, and he was attained, 
so his family lost everything, and his heir, Edward Courtenay, was not supposed to receive his title. Getting the land and getting rid of an enemy was always more important to Henry than getting to the truth of someone's <laughs> motives, <laughs> no, I, whether they really did commit treason or not. I don't think that was in play at all. Mm-mm. And in Tudor times, you're down, and then you're up again, because... When Mary I became queen, she actually made Gertrude her lady-in-waiting, and she freed Edward from the tower, and she granted them land. Gertrude's Mm -hmm. loyalty paid off. Gertrude and Edward were still in the tower the entire time that Edward VI was on the throne. Man, they spent a lot of time in there. But you're down, and then you're up again, and Gertrude is loyal to Queen Mary. She sleeps in Mary's bed, and she has her own agenda. She wants her son, Edward Courtenoy, to marry Mary, and she's against the marriage to Prince Philip. She wants Mary to marry her son instead. But Mary does marry Philip of Spain, as we all know, not Courtenoy, and that makes people enraged because Courtenoy is a very strong and important Englishman, and they don't want Spain to dominate England. And our own Thomas Wyatt the Younger organizes this rebellion with Courtenoy at the center because Edward Courtenoy is Mary's spurned English suitor who would have been a much better English king than the Spanish Philip in the eyes of many English people. And of course, you know, Thomas Wyatt puts this whole idea forward and leads this rebellion with that in mind. Philip was not terribly interested in England, that is for certain. I'm sure because of Gertrude's closeness to Mary, Edward Courtenoy is not beheaded, despite being implicated, involved, part, willingly or not, of this rebellion. He's thrown back in the tower, as we know. Princess Elizabeth is also put in the tower because there was a rumor that Wyatt's other desire was to marry Edward Courtenoy to Elizabeth, but Mary I is not going to execute Edward because of her friendship to Gertrude, and she's not going to execute Princess Elizabeth because Elizabeth is very popular. So they're both in the tower at the same time. And I'm sure you'll be pleased to know that they gave Edward Courtenoy his old room back. So he didn't even, he had the same view. (laughs) (laughs) That is a comfort. So by the time of the rebellion, Thomas Wyatt the Younger was taking care of Elizabeth Daryl, because Thomas Wyatt the Elder had died. So Thomas Wyatt the Younger has his plate full. He's having to have a rebellion and take care of his father's mistress. But fortunately for Elizabeth Daryl, Thomas Wyatt the Elder settles this land on her before Thomas the Younger creates this rebellion. And it is possible that Elizabeth Daryl would have been at Arlington Castle when this rebellion was being planned. But perhaps, again, because of her relationship to Queen Mary, she wasn't embroiled in this rebellion, and neither was this illegitimate son. Because the relationship between Elizabeth Darrell and Thomas Wyatt the Elder was was long. There's speculation that their relationship is began just after the death of Anne Boleyn in 1536. And ultimately, as we said, they moved in together and she lived there, and they were completely open about it, even though they were unmarried. She didn't only have Francis Darrell, she had two other children as well. Wyatt died on a trip in, in 1542, But he had already made his will, and this was the will that was now used to settle his estate. So he left property to Elizabeth Darrell, directing that it be inherited by one of their sons in the event of her death. Otherwise, the property would revert back to Thomas Wyatt the Younger because of primogeniture laws, because the bastard sons 
could not inherit. So Wyatt specifies this land for his bastard son. And it makes you think that Thomas the Elder and the Younger must have had a pretty good relationship because Wyatt the Younger doesn't try to wrangle that property back. He ensures his father's will was followed. And he actually added another estate to Elizabeth Darrell's holdings. And he either thought it was his responsibility or he was just a stand-up guy. Our Francis Darrell in the story, he would have never known Thomas Wyatt the Elder. He would have been a tiny child when he died. And in fact, we don't really know what happened to him. He became part of the Darrell family. But I completely believe that if Francis Darrell got a letter saying he could claim some of the inheritance of his grandfather, Sir Thomas Wyatt, he would go to London and get it. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) It's an everything to gain and nothing to lose situation. And Elizabeth Darrell finally got married and made an honest woman of herself, (laughs) I guess. That was really the only option. But she didn't have any children from that marriage, as far as we know. No. And when she married, Queen Mary paid her that 200 pounds that Catherine of Aragon had left her as a marriage portion all those years ago. When you read history and and you realize in what dangerous situations a lot of these nobles were in, you sort of think, well, if I had been their servant or their lady-in-waiting, would I have stuck by that person? But everybody had a sense that these relationships are long and the children of the person who you defended will reward you in the future. So Elizabeth Darrell did get her money, even though Henry didn't give it to her and neither did Edward. She had to wait for Mary. I wonder which relationship Wyatt would have thought was more important, Elizabeth Darrell or Anne Boleyn. So you assume a historical relationship between Wyatt and Anne Boleyn, and some historians are a little squishy about it. I mean, I do, don't you? I mean, of course, I certainly do. And particularly when you look at the poem... The Phyllis poem. Yeah, Brunette and Phyllis, how much more obvious could Wyatt be? It's true, and I think people think it's a leap to say that poem absolutely means Anne and Wyatt had an affair. What's the other option that he just randomly wrote about some brunette lady at court? He does say, if weaker care, if sudden pale color, if many sighs with little speech to plain, now joy, now woe, if they may cheer disdain, for hope of small, if much to fear, therefore, to haste or slack, my pace to less or more, be sign of love, then do I love again, if thou ask whom, sure, since I did refrain, brunette, her that did set our country in a roar. The unfeigned cheer of Phyllis hath the place that Brunette had. She hath and ever shall. She from myself now hath me in her grace. She hath me in hand, my wit, my will, and all. My heart alone well worthy she doth stay, without whose help scant do I live a day. I guess it was easier to be in love with Elizabeth Darrell. Can you imagine how stressful it was to be in love with Anne? My goodness. Half the place that Brunette had. I can't believe that people aren't willing to acknowledge that it's Anne. She was a famous, famous Brunette. I mean, where did the Brunette film fatale come from? Was it Anne? Oh, I, I don't think we have any idea about that. But I, but it, it's also clearly Anne because of the line, she that set our country in a roar. And who else could that be than Anne Boleyn? And Wyatt changed that line to protect himself to brunette that set my wealth in such a roar because he knew that a contemporary audience at court would immediately know it was Anne Boleyn that he was talking about and that Henry VIII would know it was Anne Boleyn he was talking about and he would get into an S-load of trouble. Yes, I mean, 
We think that that poem lays out and other poems and other poems that Wyatt and Anne had a long and tumultuous relationship, along with another poem that we just talked about in another episode, "Whoso List to Hunt,"、mm-hmm, for where、sure. the hind is Caesar's, you know, and it's it's clearly about Anne and Henry. All this poetry and all this angst and all this love doesn't mean that Wyatt, the man of the big heart, couldn't move on and find love with Elizabeth Darrell. No, and I hope. All of our listeners move on and find a good、yes. love. We hope you replace your brunette with a Phyllis. Yes. So join us next time when we go back to those fighting siblings, Margaret and Thomas Wyatt. And don't forget, support the podcast, buy some swag. Join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. 